0: I'm going to read two passages in our Harmony of the Gospel here this morning. First, turn over to Luke's Gospel with me, and we'll read in chapter 23, verses 1 through 5. Verses 1 through 5 of Luke 23. Then the whole body of them got up and brought him before Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. So Pilate asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him and said, It is as you say. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they kept on insisting, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching all over Judea, starting with from Galilee, even as far As this place. Turn with me to John chapter 18. We'll read verses 28 through 38 in John 18. John 18, verses 28 through 38. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas into the praetorium, and it was early. And they themselves did not enter into the praetorium so that they would not be defiled, but might eat the Passover. Therefore, Pilate went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered and said to him, If this man were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him to you. So Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. The Jews said to him, We're not permitted to put anyone to death. To fulfill the word of Jesus, which he spoke, signifying by what kind of death he was about to die. Therefore Pilate entered again into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Are you saying this on your own initiative, or did others tell you about me? Pilate answered, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and chief priests delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Therefore Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? And then when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no guilt in him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank You for Your ongoing instruction of not only our minds, but our hearts and wills, our emotions. Thank You that You deal with us as whole people who are in continual need of Your training and reproof and correction. And I thank You that You've given us the tool, the means by which this transformation occurs as the Holy Spirit brings Your Word uh, down deep into our souls, changing us, impacting us. I pray for those who are not Christians that are here with us today, that You would even convince them of the verities of Jesus, that they would know who He truly is, and that they might respond appropriately to Him. I pray the same for those who are my brothers and sisters in Christ, just that we would see His glory all the more, that we would grow in relationship with Him today. As we consider the mockery of a trial that he received. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. Well, having just celebrated Thanksgiving this past week, of all the things that we as a church have to be thankful for, nothing can compare with the greatest gift ever given to man, that the coming of whom we celebrate at our next big holiday together, Christmas. There is no greater gift. Than Jesus, and there is no greater work that's ever been accomplished than the work of redemption of mankind. So as we come into the Advent season, today is our is measured by four Sundays before Christmas. So this Sunday is the first Sunday of of Advent. We remember anew the glorious gift of that baby born in Bethlehem over 2,000 years ago, the incredible miracle of the incarnation. God the Son taking on flesh and dwelling among us. And here we find ourselves in our gospel harmony in the midst of talking about the final moments of Jesus' earthly ministry and life as he approached the cross. It's fitting for this, for Jesus came for this purpose. He came and took on flesh that he might live a perfect life, fulfill all righteousness, and then lay down his life as a ransom for many. He who was, is, and always will be God became man that for man he might die. Right? So God the Son took on flesh, became a man that he might die for man. He willingly submitted himself to God the Father's plan. And while completely innocent, was put to death by ungodly men for ungodly men that he might bring ungodly men to God. Right? This is what Jesus has done. So where are we here in the account of Jesus' trials? Well, he's been betrayed by Judas, he's been denied by Peter, and now he's been condemned by the Jewish leadership, by the Sanhedrin. So now he's brought to the Romans. He's brought to the Roman governor, Pilate, to be precise, for execution. The details of the events that transpire um, within Pilate's praetorium, within the Roman governorship... Is recorded by John alone. You'll see that Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record this kind of as a really quick excerpt. They went before Pilate. There was an accusation that he's the king of the Jews. Jesus. Or Pilate then asked that question. That's all the details we get. But John's gospel gives us some rich detail about what is going on, which has caused some people to wonder how is it that John came upon this information. John doesn't tell us explicitly how it is that he came to know the things that he knew. But certainly we can offer a couple of different solutions as to how John would know these things. First of all, we know that John had privileged access to the court of the high priest. He was one that was able to come into the high priest court. Remember, he's even the one that gets Peter in there himself. So he had some amount of influence within Jewish circles. Perhaps as a result of that, he also was granted access into the Roman court. And as we'll see in a moment, the the Jewish leadership won't go into the Roman court because of other scruples that they have. But I'm sure that John wouldn't have had shared any of those same scruples. So... He could have walked right in, potentially. Or perhaps he gained this information as part of a a matter of public records. Rome would eventually publish things that had happened within the court system, so maybe even it was able to read about it. Or how about this one? Jesus rose again from the dead and spent time with the disciples. We don't know all the things that Jesus told the disciples while he was walking even with them before his ascension. And so it is quite possible also that Jesus might have given them a play-by-play of what happened when he went into Pilate's court. Whatever the case, we have an amazing account written by John, inspired by God. In a sermon entitled on trial, on trial, we're going to consider three concurrent trials that are happening in the events surrounding the Roman portion of Jesus' trials. For you see, it's not just Jesus that's on trial here, but so are the Jewish leaders and the Roman leaders. And by extension, you're going to see here that all of mankind is also on trial. For the ultimate question before all of us this morning is, who do you say Jesus is? And how will you respond to Him? Who do you say Jesus is? And how will you respond to Him? First of all, we're going to look at the Jewish leadership. And we're going to note this with point number one, the self-righteous on trial. If there was one good description of the Jewish leadership, I think this one's a pretty good one. Self-righteous. They felt righteous in and of themselves. They conducted many rituals, and they believed that their ritual observances somehow put them in right standing with God. Here we have, first of all, the self-righteous on trial, and we learn that ritualism can't save you. First of all, let's consider the scruples of the self-righteous. So the religious leaders have gone through all this mockery of a trial with Jesus in the Jewish phases of his trials, and now they move out while it's still yet early they're moving quickly because they want to put Jesus to death as speedily as possible without any further incident. Remember, they don't want the general populace to somehow stop the proceedings. They don't want anything to get in the way of putting Jesus to death. So Jesus is brought to the praetorium, which is the residence of the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. Pilate served in that office for around 10 years, from around AD 26 to AD 37. Now, the Jewish leaders, as they approach the praetorium, will not themselves enter into the praetorium because they're concerned that if they do, they'll become defiled by entering into a Gentile residence or establishment. Now, if you search through the Old Testament trying to find this specific legal legislation, you won't find it. There's not some specific thing that says, as a Jew, you cannot walk into a Gentile house. It doesn't say that. But it was part of Jewish tradition. It was part of the rabbinical teachings. You can see even notes about this in the Jewish Mishnah. So, There isn't anything specifically even in the law of God that spoke to this reality, but the Jews followed this scrupulously. Perhaps the defilement they were concerned about during the Passover season was that, well, if it was a Gentile house, certainly they wouldn't clear out all the leaven from the house, so maybe we'll contact leaven while in there. Well, if you did contact leaven while there, you'd be out about a day from proceedings. You'd have to go through a ritual washing ceremony at the end of the day and then you'd be established you got back into the community so that would put you out for a day if you had contact with something that was dead that would give you at least a week outside so they're concerned about something we're not sure exactly what but they're concerned that they're going to as a result of if they go into the praetorium they're going to be unclean for some period of time and as a result they're either going to miss part of the Passover celebration which again is another question had they celebrated Passover the night before when Jesus was celebrating it or was it possible that through their plotting and planning, they skipped Passover and they were looking to have it after they get Jesus crucified? We don't know. We also know that Passover starts off the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which went for a longer period of time. So they don't want to be, they don't want to miss out on any of the festivities, right? So they're making sure they maintain these rituals, this ritual cleanness. We have to pause there. What a gross example of rampant hypocrisy, isn't it? They give their utmost attention to ceremonial matters while they're in the midst of committing the greatest iniquity imaginable by rejecting and condemning the Messiah, the very Son of God. They're concerned about ceremonial defilement and eating the Passover and not at all concerned about the mockery of justice that they're engaged in And their rejection of the Passover lamb, the Son of God, the Messiah. They're concerned about celebrating the Passover and missing what the Passover was all about. Jesus. They're killing Jesus while being concerned about celebrating the Passover. Tasker says it so well. They're anxious to avoid external defilement in order to observe a festival whose real significance was that, as well as reminding God's people of God's deliverance of them from Egypt. It pointed forward to the true Passover Lamb, whose sacrifice would bring to an end all distinctions between what is ceremonially clean and unclean. The effect, and in fact, an inward cleansing. It was the death of that true Passover Lamb that the Jews at that moment are anxious to bring about. So here, the very murderers of Jesus are concerned about ritual defilement by walking into a Gentile establishment while they're engaged in the most heinous sort of moral. Um, wrong but this isn't uncommon for the pharisees jesus had pointed this out about them these were those who tied on mint and cummin, who neglected the weightier matters of the law judgment mercy and faith this all arose because they were jesus said full of greed and self-indulgence on the inside he says you appear outwardly beautiful but inwardly you're full of dead men's bones and uncleanness he says, outwardly, you appear righteous to others, while meanwhile, inwardly, you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. This is all Jesus' scathing rebukes. Woe unto you, Pharisees, scribes, hypocrites, in Matthew 23. Now, we're seeing that in full array, right? I mean, this is, it doesn't get any more stark than this. We're concerned about getting some ceremonial defilement you don't even find in the Old Testament. And meanwhile, we're putting to death God's own Son, Jesus. You see, on the outside, they're concerned about what everybody thinks of them. But inwardly, they're murderers. They're liars. And they're engaging in this horrible duplicity. Sadly, though, the Jews are not alone in this sort of behavior. Sadly, it's not just the Jews that struggle from this. J.C. Rao says, it's not, not an uncommon thing to find people Excessively particular about the observance of trifling forms and outward ceremonies while they're slaves of degrading sins and detestable immoralities. This is not an uncommon situation. There are many who put on an external form while inwardly they're full of hypocrisy. And on some level, none of us escape this on some level. All of us are guilty of this on some level. But there are some who... Show this in rampant ways. It's, maybe one of the examples that comes to my mind is the, the idea of what happens for some people with the Lenten season, where they decide to give up something during Lent, and they fast from that, whatever it is. But usually what they do is they indulge in it beforehand and afterward, right? So we give it up for this time to appear to be righteous or holy, but meanwhile nothing about our heart towards a thing has changed at all, right? To have some sort of Lent thing after a Fat Tuesday or whatever it's called, you know, to have some gross immorality and then say, now we're going to, we've got that out of our system and now we're going to engage in this fasting. What is that? Some outward form that has no true heart or change within. We always have to be aware of external ritualism. The belief that you're saved by outward observance to forms. And it's not just like, you know, high church positions where this occurs. It happens even in Normal, everyday, coming-to-church kinds of rituals as well. It's possible for any of us to fall into traditions and think by the sake of outward forms that somehow everything is right. It's easy to put on a face. Meanwhile, our hearts be corrupt and evil and wrong. And deceive everyone around us. But meanwhile, God's not deceived. He knows right exactly what's going on within our hearts. Our hearts are a much bigger problem than the environment that we're in. Right? They're concerned about the environment of walking into Pilate's praetorium. They're concerned about the environment that they're walking into. What they don't realize is their own hearts are way more defiled than if they had come in contact with leaven within the, 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 the uh, Roman governorship. We are already corrupt and wicked and sinful. Outward conformity to rituals and standards won't solve our problem right attending church doesn't solve your problem being baptized doesn't solve your problem having lord's supper doesn't solve your problem all of these can be just empty rituals empty external things that people are going through if it isn't manifested by a change of heart inwardly then it's all outwardly empty what gives it significance the symbols have significance if there's genuine inward heart change but without that it's all empty and the pharisees are engaged in the most wicked sort of duplicity We also see their arrogance. We see the arrogance of the self-righteous. We see their scruples and we see their arrogance. So Pilate comes outside to meet with these with these Jews because they won't come into the praetorium, which gives this interesting back and forth drama. Um, One writer said it's almost like if you get the front of stage and then the backstage pass. We're getting to see both sides of this. Pilate comes out, talks to the Jewish leadership, and then he goes back and talks to Jesus privately so you have this kind of back and forth part of this drama and in a sense you're asking the question we're going to get to Pilate in a minute what is Pilate going to do with all of this what is Pilate's decision going to be now remember the jews are operator operating under cloak of darkness they're conducting a criminal they're not conducting some sort of criminal investigation so much as they're just trying to put jesus to death they've already condemned him that was already like a Foregone conclusion. They were just trying to find something that they could attach to him by which they could kill him. Nor, no formal charges had been made against Jesus. No help was given to Jesus' defense. No real case had been made by the prosecution. All of the false witnesses that they had brought together had failed to corroborate a testimony that would stand against even the slightest scrutiny. Jesus was condemned ultimately by the Jews for owning who he was for admitting who he was, that he was the Christ, the Son of Man and the Son of God. Well, things worked differently in Rome. We're not just going to have this foregone conclusion. So Pilate, if, from the outset of this, says, even though, by the way, Roman political and, and judicial system was also corrupt, I'm not saying that they weren't corrupt, but they operated differently. And they said, in order for you to call, call for a judgment and punishment, I have to first hear an accusation. What is the accusation? What are you charging Jesus with. Now, this is something the Jews have been trying to come up with this whole time, right? They had a verdict looking for an accusation through all the Jewish procedure. And so now Pilate says, what's the charge? What are you bringing against him? Now, as soon as he asks this, the Jews become offended and perhaps humiliated. And they show it through a defensive posture. So they retort, if he wasn't an evildoer, we wouldn't have brought him to you. Now, note how evasive that is, too, right? You just ask, what's the charge? And they respond like, well, if he wasn't a bad guy, we wouldn't have brought him here to you in the first place. certainly not a direct answer to Pilate. It seems evasive, it's defensive. Perhaps they're a little taken off guard by Pilate's question. Remember, when they arrested Jesus, they had a cohort of Roman troops. That didn't happen without Pilate knowing about it. So certainly Pilate, on some level at least, authorized the use of Roman troops to go and get Jesus in the first place. So perhaps they're taken off guard by it. They're thinking, oh, Pilate's in our pocket. He's going to be fine. We're just going to get this thing done. And now Pilate says, what's the charge against this man? They're like, we wouldn't have brought him before you unless he is guilty of something. He was an evildoer of some sort. They arrogantly announced that we wouldn't bring an innocent man to you. Think about that for just a minute. They arrogantly say, "We wouldn't have brought an innocent man to you," but that's exactly what they've done. They have brought an innocent man to Pilate. So, although the Jews could find nothing against Jesus, they call him an evildoer. Right? We wouldn't have brought him to you if, unless he was an evildoer. Well, what's the doing of evil that he's done? There aren't no specifics given here at least immediately. They don't want. Here's ultimately what's going on. They don't want Pilate to sit in judgment on Jesus. They just want Pilate to execute Jesus. Right? We don't, you don't need to go through a court proceeding, Pilate. We've already handled that. We've already found him to be an evildoer. We're just bringing him to you that you might execute him. But instead, Pilate just turns his back around to the Jewish authorities and says, Why don't you handle this yourself? So he must have agreed on some level to allow the Roman troops to be involved in the arrest, but it seems like as if Pilate's wanting to distance himself from any immediate responsibility regarding this Jesus character. Like, okay, I'm fine if you guys do something with him. I'm not so sure I want to be involved in the case, at least not explicitly. So he tries to push it back onto the Jewish legal system. But the Jews respond, we need you to be involved because we don't have the power of enacting capital punishment. We're not allowed to put someone to death which by implication means they want Jesus put to death, right? That's why we're here. This guy is an evildoer, and he is worthy of death. Now, Pilate may well have known that this was the case, that they, what they wanted to do with Jesus, but he wants to hear the Jews explain this outwardly. He may also be showing why he needs to hear the case this, in this charge against Jesus. This was not merely just some religious matter, because that's what Pilate saying. He says, hey, why don't you just judge him according to your law? And they report, they report by saying, no, we can't put him to death. So in other words, they're saying that there's a charge here beyond our religious observances. The Jews in their arrogance would love to distance themselves from the dirty work of putting Jesus to death. And we kind of see this back and forth between Pilate and the Jewish leadership. And as the Jews try to push this off on Pilate, they unwittingly fulfill prophecy. John, once again, at this point, highlights that this all happens in specific fulfillment of what Jesus said would be the manner of his own death. I just want to cite a couple of references in the Gospels where Jesus talks about his coming death and the specifics that he gives. And you'll see how this is a specific fulfillment of what Jesus had said beforehand would happen. First of all, Jesus had prophesied that he would be delivered to the chief priests and scribes. He would then be condemned to death by them, but then handed over to the Gentiles mark ten thirty three behold we're going up to Jerusalem. the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes. they will condemn him to death, and they will hand him over to the Gentiles. You can also see that parallel in luke nine twenty two so mark ten thirty three luke nine twenty two a little bit further in luke's gospel luke nine verse forty four he says, let these words sink into your ears, for the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. Then he says in luke eighteen thirty two For the Son of Man will be delivered or handed over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. And after they have scourged him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. You see repeated times where Jesus says, I'm going to be handed over to the chief priests and scribes. They're going to condemn me to death and they're going to hand me over to the Gentiles. But not only this, but Jesus prophesied not only who would be engaged in his death, But the manner of his death, and this is what John is really highlighting. This happened because this is the way, the means by which Jesus had prophesied he would be killed. Jesus would be lifted up. Jesus would be lifted up. And we had two of those references in John's Gospel right here this morning. first one happens in John 3, in that discussion with Nicodemus. Jesus says no one is ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the son of man, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the son of man be lifted up so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Jesus says the son of man must be lifted up. Then we read in John 12, and it's made even more specific here. If I. If I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. And then we have the editorial comment. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he would die. Right. So Jesus has already made this clear. Not only will I be delivered over to the Gentiles to be killed, but I will be lifted up. And when I'm lifted up, I will draw men unto myself. He's indicating the means by which he would die. Matthew 26.2 says, After two days the Passover is coming... Jesus says, and the Son of Man is to be handed over for crucifixion. I don't know how much more clear it could be. Jesus, adamant about how this is going to take place. And so John is picking that up. He's saying, all of this conniving, all of this backroom stuff, all this cloak of darkness, they think they're tricking Jesus. They think they're taking him on a ride. Meanwhile, Jesus says, this is exactly how it's going to happen. It's all part of a grand plan. Nothing is spiraling out of control. There are times when perhaps we might feel that our lives are spiraling out of control. That this all is happening by some freak chance or accident. But we see that even in moments that seem so outlandish, and in this case, so dark, we see that God is bringing to pass His perfect purposes. We see the prophetic fulfillment of the manner of Jesus' death. Remember, if the Jews had done it, if they were going to put him to death, it would have been stoning. That's how it would have happened. It wouldn't have been lifting up Jesus. It would have been pushing him down with heavy stones. Again, there was at least two occasions in which they attempted to do just that. You have it recorded in John's Gospel. John 8:59. They picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. John 10, verses 31 through 33. Again, the Jews picked up stones to throw at him. And Jesus at that point says... I showed you many good works from the Father. Which one of, for which one of those are you trying to stone me? I love that. You know? You've seen my works. You've seen lots of good things from me. Which one of those are you trying to kill me today? And they go, it's not for something that you've done. It's for who you say you are. That you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. Again, how clear Jesus was about the fact that he was not only man, but also God. Very, very clear. And the Jews understood what he was trying to say. They're picking up stones ready to stone him. But that's not the means by which Jesus would die. He would not die by stoning. He would die by crucifixion, by being lifted up from the earth. So the handing over to the Romans literally fits with the means of Jesus' death that Jesus prophesied beforehand would take place. say, why take time with this? Why is this significant? Well, there is a very interesting significance found with it. And for this connection, we go to Deuteronomy 21, verse 23, where we read the following words, anyone who is hanged on a tree is under God's curse. Now, just for a moment here, Remember, if we travel backward here, Caiaphas had foresaw the potential of this whole thing playing out like this. And he said, the high priest Caiaphas said, it would be better if one man die than for all of us to perish. Remember, and he unwittingly, prophetically spoke in a much deeper and richer way than he had any idea of what he was talking about. He was carrying about Jewish political interests. And he says, hey, if we hand him over as the scapegoat and we can come out looking squeaky clean, then that works good for us. Let's let him die, and we can continue on with doing our thing. Meanwhile, there's a much deeper spiritual reality of what he's saying there. He didn't understand that this is the means by which Jesus would literally die for his people. Paul made this connection in Galatians 3.13. He said, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. This is at least the second time in which Rome's involvement, and you could probably pick out some more, but these, at least, these two are the ones that come screaming to my mind, at least the second time in which Rome's involvement in the affairs of Jesus' life and ministry end up being specific fulfillment to prophetic announcements. For example, the one that I'm thinking of is the one at Christmas. Caesar makes an edict to take the census, which makes Joseph and Mary have to travel too. Bethlehem, right? The place in which Jesus, uh, David's town, David's city, the city of David, the place in which the Messiah is prophesied to be born. So that census that's ordered by Caesar causes Mary and Joseph to travel when Mary's even far along in her pregnancy to go for the census. They arrive in Bethlehem, they have the baby there, specific fulfillment of prophecy. Now, here again, here with the Romans, again, back to Rome, here towards the end of Jesus' life. It is through the actions of the Romans, their perfection of crucifixion, a most torturous way in which to kill someone, in which Jesus would be lifted up. And in being lifted up, if we think of Deuteronomy 21, all those who hang from a tree are cursed of God. Paul says in Galatians 3, Jesus took the curse. He was the one who came to sacrifice himself to take the curse for ungodly men. The reason why we can be blessed is because he was cursed on our stead for those who believe in him. He can remove the curse for us that we might be blessed. We've noted the scruples and the arrogance of these self-righteous Jewish leaders. Now let's consider the self-concerned. What do we learn from Pilate's actions? Let's consider the self-concerned on trial. And we'll learn here that pragmatism can't save you. Ritualism can't save you and neither can pragmatism. I'm going to see two things in this self-concerned individual, Pilate. The first is that he was quite aloof. He wanted to maintain his distance throughout all of the proceedings, and you're going to see some of it today, and you'll see some of it next time we're together as well. It's been said that Pilate's political philosophy revolved around two ideals in Jerusalem. The first one was, don't upset Rome. (laughs) Don't get in trouble with my superiors. So make sure everything stays under control as much as possible, because if I don't do well with that... Rome's going to be upset, and I'm going to have a lot of trouble to pay for. But the second political philosophy of Pilate was to snub the Jewish people whenever possible. (laughs) Make life difficult for them. You know, push around his weight a little bit. So he's not somebody who just wants to cater to Jewish whims. He probably is, you know, he's grown up and seen the political intrigue, and he probably doesn't trust people in general. And you can kind of see this in some of the interaction that he has a little bit later on. These policies, I think, are both in play as Pilate hears the case against Jesus. He, he's not excited about carrying out Jewish wishes. He's not there to do Jewish favors. He doesn't care about the Jewish people. But on the other hand, he doesn't have any problems with Rome. And if the Jewish people can cause some problems with the higher-ups within the Roman government, that could be problems for Pilate. What is Pilate concerned about? Himself. That's what he cares about. He cares about himself. He wants to push around his weight wherever he can, and he wants to not upset anyone that might otherwise cause his life to be more difficult. So Pilate enters into the praetorium back from the Jewish people. But what charge does he bring? He was asking for a charge. John doesn't give us one specifically, but Luke does. Over in Luke chapter 23, verse 2, we read this. They began to accuse Jesus, saying, We found this man misleading our nation, Forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Say that again. So there's three things they mention. They all kind of coalesce into one main idea. The three ideas are these he's misleading our nation. He's forbidding us to pay taxes to Caesar. And he's saying that he himself is Messiah. And then they give a further understanding to Pilate. What he means by that is he says he's a king. He says he's a king. So the charge is sedition, treason. They're charging Jesus with treason. They're saying he's trying to cause a revolt, a rebellion against Roman rule. That's the claim. He's perverting, distorting, misleading the Jewish nation. He's forbidding the payment of taxes to Caesar. He's putting himself forward as a king. Now, remember, this is the plan that the Sanhedrin had been kind of putting together. They... We're upset with Jesus because they considered him a blasphemer. He was claiming to be God, and they wanted to put him to death. But they knew that that charge wouldn't work with Rome. They spin this towards a political agenda. So they bring these civil charges against him attached with being the Messiah, the Christ, a king. They attempt to represent Jesus as being a leader of the Jews who is encouraging rebellion against Rome. They want Jesus to be punished in their stead. They want to make Jesus a scapegoat of anti-Roman feelings. They want, they want him to be the one that everyone punishes thinking, okay, we got rid of the traitor. And meanwhile, they can hide the fact that they themselves in their own hearts are really the traitors. Remember, this is what Caiaphas was all about in John 11. He's like, you know, you guys know nothing at all. You don't take into account it's expedient for us to have this one guy die for the people that the whole nation, not perish. They themselves don't actually think Jesus is the Messiah, right? They're saying he, he, he says he's the Messiah. They don't believe that he's the Messiah. They've rejected him as the Messiah. In fact... Their beliefs regarding what the Messiah came to do was at odds with what Jesus said the Messiah had come to do. It's so one of the reasons why they were so angry with Jesus is because he wouldn't pick up political power and kick out Rome. They wanted the Messiah to do that. Jesus was not doing that. This was so it's so, it's so full of hypocrisy. The very thing they want Jesus to be, he's not. And so they accuse him of being the thing he's not, that they want him to be. If he had been that militaristic Political revolutionary, they have been all for that, right? Let's kick Rome out. Let's take charge, this kind of idea. It wasn't what Jesus had come to do. They're secretly hoping for a political leader to free them from Rome's dominance. So the hypocrisy of this charge is so unbearable. Jesus would indeed die. But he wouldn't die to secure some temporary protection from Rome or some temporary freedom from Rome He would die to secure the church, both Jews and Gentiles, who believe in Him, salvation from their sin. He would die as a scapegoat, but not to bring favor with Rome, but to offer men favor with God. He would die in the place of sinners, that sinners might be forgiven. And Jesus had never, ever forbidden paying of of taxes to Caesar. It's a bald-faced lie, Right? he's actually specifically asked about that. Remember when he did? He said, anybody have a coin? Can you show that to me? He looks at it and he goes, whose inscription's on the coin? And they say, Caesar. Well, give to Caesar what's Caesar's. And give to God what is God's. He didn't forbid the paying of taxes to Caesar. Quite the opposite. He said, give to Caesar what's Caesar's. So you see, there's, there's so many levels. Even the specifics they try to give to say that he's encouraging rebellion are patently false. Now, Rome didn't take rebellion lightly. So Pilate has to hear this case. I mean, they've accused him of traitorous activity. He probably has his doubts about this whole sordid affair, because we read in Matthew twenty seven, eighteen, that Pilate knew that the Jews brought him out of envy. He knew that they were envious of Jesus. Pilate's wife suffers from a dream, we'll read about this later too, suffers from a dream one night about this Jesus, and she says, have nothing to do with this righteous man. So Pilate is superstitious, his wife is at least, and he's hearing these things, he has doubts about what these Jews are all about, so he approaches Jesus and he says, you're the king of the Jews? All four Gospels record this question from Pilate. The question that Pilate asks Jesus is, you're the king of the Jews? I like that rendition of the question because the word you happens first in all four gospel accounts. In Greek, the order of words most often is used for emphasis because it's not required for syntax. You can determine how the sentence fits together, not by word order. Word order is used for emphasis, and I almost think it's like this kind of idea. Pilate comes in, sees Jesus, and goes, you're the guy? (laughs) You're the one that everyone's upset about? You're the king of the Jews? Pilate's goal here is to determine if indeed Jesus' rightful title is king, and what does he intend to do with this title of king. Obviously, only Caesar was king, according to Roman rule, right? And Caesar would not tolerate another person within his realm claiming to be king. So, Pilate's goal is to figure out, in what sense is this Jesus' title? Is it, in fact, who Jesus is claiming to be? Certainly, Pilate had heard of recent events. He's been in Jerusalem. Just a week before this, Jesus came riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, right? People coming out with palm branches saying, Hosanna. So all of this festive fanfare had just happened. He's certainly aware of what had just gone on within the city. And now he's here standing face to face with Jesus. And he says to him, you're the king of the Jews? Jesus asks him, is this your personal inquiry? Or have you heard this about me? Did someone tell you that about me? Jesus is asking here, is this an inquiry in reference to Rome? Are are you asking, is this what I'm trying to claim, that I'm a king like Caesar? If, If that is your question, the answer is no, I'm not asserting an overthrow of the Roman government. If Pilate is asking in reference to the Jews, the answer is yes, but not in the sense the Jews were depicting his kingship. Does Pilate ask from a personal desire to know or, or to merely operate in an official capacity. Another quick way of asking this is, does Rome have a hit out on Jesus? Who's bringing the charge? Where were the Gentiles? I mean, if, there, if Rome was concerned about Jesus being this rebellious faction, where are the accusers? I wonder if Pilate is thinking about all this, right? It's Jewish people, they're turning him over, saying that he's Against Rome? I know in general the Jews are against Rome, so why are they handing him over to me? I don't have any complaints from Gentiles. What's the deal with this guy? Who are you? You're the king of the Jews? Jesus' question back to Pilate gets to the heart of the matter as far as Pilate is concerned. Jesus asks, do you personally care about who I am? Are you just here trying to investigate something you've heard from other people? Do you have anything personally invested in this question? Do you personally care? I think mean, this is so, so valid. How many times have you had discussions with people about Jesus, and you come to find out pretty quick, they don't have any personal care about Jesus at all. They just want to get in some long-winded debate, and they don't even care about what they're talking about. Like, those flip sides, it doesn't even matter. They don't have any personal invest, anything personally invested. They don't really care themselves. This is what Jesus is kind of getting at with Pilate. Do you personally care about who I am? Do you have a personal concern about who I am, or is this just some procedure that you're moving through? Pilate quickly disowns any sort of personal inquiry. He's not a Jew. He has any interest in Jewish affairs. He says, It was your own nation and chief priests who delivered you to me. Pilate's saying, I have nothing to do with Jewish matters. I don't have any personal interest in you. It's almost like he's kind of like offended by it. Jesus had even asked the question that Pilate might have some personal concern about who Jesus is. This is a Jewish matter. It's your own people that delivered you over to me. But you see, Jesus is not merely some Jewish matter. As Jesus is about to explain to Pilate, His kingdom not being of this world transcends national issues. His kingdom is truth. And the truth of what He brought impacts every tribe, tongue, and nation. Every... Every nationality, every every tongue. Pilate asked Jesus, So what have you done wrong? He's indicating here that he thinks that something else is going on. Something else must be going on here, Jesus. What have you done? Why are your people so angry with you? He probably thinks it's unlikely that the Jewish leadership would go to such great lengths to do away with a man who's intent on trying to remove the Roman yoke. Like, it doesn't make sense to him. Unless, on some level, the Jewish leadership had some of their own interests at risk here. So he's trying to figure it out. Pilate would love to expose something further here. What's going on? Jesus answers, My kingdom is not of this world, so my servants aren't engaged in a fight with Rome. My kingdom is not of here. Jesus is pointing out something that should be plainly obvious to Pilate. Okay. If I'm all about garnering a political activism group, where are my followers right now, Pilot? Do you see the people, you know, the rabble out front banging down the door trying to pitchforks and torches, trying to come in here? Like, who's involved in a rescue mission right now, Pilot? Where are my people? If that's what this is all about, where are they? There's no scuffle when I was arrested. There's no difficulties. In fact, it's kind of interesting that, you know, if they wanted to pick something to Jesus, maybe they'd bring out the fact that, well, you know, one of his own followers, Peter, like, threw his sword and cut off Malchus' ear. Remember that? But they can't do that, right? They can't do that. Because Jesus picked up the ear healed Malchus' ear until Peter put his sword away, right? That whole thing is going to go nowhere good for us. We can't bring up that miracle that Jesus did, right? Hey, if anything, he put down a potential rebellion. There's nothing that they can attach to Jesus. So none of this comes out Remember in John 6, after Jesus feeds the 5,000? We're told in John 6:15 that as soon as he was done feeding the 5,000, that Jesus retreats up to a mountain off by himself. And we're told why. Because the people there wanted to grab Jesus and take him by force and make him king. Jesus purposefully removed himself from an environment of people who were ready to put, them, put Jesus on their shoulders and march him right on up and say, you are now king. Jesus avoids that entire situation on purpose. Read about it in, in John 6.15. In fact, if Pilate were really looking into the matter of the crime that Jesus is being charged with by the Jewish leadership, he would see that it's the Jewish leadership that's really the ones who are guilty. They're the ones wanting the political leader to free them from Roman tyranny. And since Jesus is not this Messiah, they're quick to give him up on false charges. But Jesus says, "My kingdom is of an all different, altogether different kind. It's not of here. My kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom trumps ultimately all earthly kingdoms, but it is not of this world." So, but all that Pilate hears there is he who hears the word king and kingdom. Who has a kingdom? Who has a kingship? A king. So Pilate puts the question back to Jesus. So you are a king. So you are a king, Jesus. Jesus says, Yes, it it is the case that I'm a king. I've been born as a king. I've come into this world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone of the truth hears my voice. Jesus says, You say so. Again, carrying the idea, I can't deny the fact that I'm a king. You don't get what I mean by this. (laughs) But it is true that... In a sense, I am a king, not the one you think I am. One of a totally different magnitude. You see, the Jews had been wrong in their belief regarding Jesus' coming. He had come not as a political organizer, but to witness to the truth about God and to testify about God's justice and and mercy. In fact, Jesus' kingdom is far more expansive than Pilate or the Jewish religious leaders ever dreamed. And... It seemed like no better fitting way to describe this than to quote Dr. S.M. Lockridge from 1976, a sermon in which he put together the to described the greatness of King Jesus. I'm just taking an excerpt from an excerpt here just to give you the feel of it. But I think what he does here is he starts to, he starts to get at the idea of how great Jesus' kingship is. And it's of a whole together different type. Than what Pilate or the Jews were clamoring for. Who's this King Jesus? He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. He's God's son. He's the sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He stands alone in himself. He's honest. He's unique. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He's supreme. He's preeminent. He's the miracle of the age. He's the superlative of everything good that you could choose to call him. He's the only one able to supply all our needs simultaneously. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He's the almighty God who guides and keeps all his people. He heals the sick. He cleanses the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the aged. He rewards the diligent and he beautifies the meek. My king is a king of knowledge. He's a wellspring of wisdom. He's the doorway of deliverance. He's the pathway of peace. He's the roadway of righteousness. He's the highway of holiness. He's the gateway of glory. He's the master of the mighty. He's the captain of the conquerors. He's the head of the heroes. He's the leader of the legislators. He's the overseer of the overcomers. He's the governor of the governors. He's the prince of princes. He's the king of kings. He's the lord of lords. That's my king. The heaven of heavens cannot contain him, let alone some man explain him. You can't get him out of your mind and you can't get him off of your hands. You can't outlive him and you can't live without him. The Pharisees couldn't stand him. They found out They couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. The witnesses couldn't get their testimonies to agree about him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him. And the grave couldn't hold him. That's my king. He always has been. And he always will be. I'm talking about the fact that he had no predecessor and he'll have no successor. There's nobody before him and there'll be nobody after him. You can't impeach him and he's not going to resign. That's my king. That's my king. Matthew Henry said that Jesus would conquer through the convincing evidence of truth. He would rule by the commanding power of truth. All who are in love with truth will hear the voice of Christ, for greater, better, surer, sweeter truths can nowhere be found than they are found in Jesus, by whom grace and truth come. So, how would aloof Pilate respond to the king of truth, who's sitting right there in front of him? He would compromise. Here we see the compromise of the self-concern. Pilate says to Jesus, what is truth? And he doesn't wait for an answer. Note that. What is truth? And out he goes to the Jewish people. By the way, note that this is postmodernism in a pre-modern time. (laughs) That is the question of today. What is truth? Who says what's true? Who says what's right? Who says what's moral? Who says that homosexuality is sin? Who says that abortion is murder? How dare you say such things? Who says you're right? How arrogant to say that that's true. To say that something is true and something else is false. Who are you to say such things? What is truth? It's a question of today. We note here that there's nothing new under the sun. Yeah, that might typify our generation, but that sort of cynicism has existed since sin has existed. What is truth? Isn't that kind of even at the heart a little bit of what Satan's lie was to Eve? Did God really say? Will you really die? You surely won't die. What is truth? Pilate's playing fast and loose with truth, just as men do now. It's what happens when our minds are held captive to sin. Sin corrupts our reasoning ability. We don't come to rightful conclusions regarding reality. There are a host of lies that continue to battle for supremacy against the truth. And Satan doesn't really care which lie you buy. As a matter of fact, if you reject one lie just to swallow another lie, whole line and sinker, great. Sure, okay, avoid that lie. Buy this lie. There's one truth and there are varieties of lies. And just because there's a variety of lies doesn't mean there isn't a truth. Pilate's not interested in discussing The nature of truth with Jesus, though. So he shrugs it off as a fool's errand. Perhaps he had listened to all the Greek philosophers while he was a young child. Perhaps he saw all their opinions and he couldn't see how any of these could all possibly be true. What is true anyway? Maybe all these lies abounding around him makes him think that there is no truth that exists at all. Who could ever determine what that was? Meanwhile, God has furnished us with a mind that's able to reason. He's provided evidence of Himself within creation. He's put evidence of Himself within even the hearts of man by writing His law on our hearts. We spoke about that a little bit this morning. He especially revealed Himself in His Word, and He personally has given the gift of a conscience to people, and He's definitively given the person of His Son, Jesus, who is the truth. Perhaps Pilate's experience in government slanted them against truth in another way, He had seen so many things happen that didn't happen out of a searching for truth. Decisions made out of a need for practicality or out of expedience or self-interest. Kind of like what Caiaphas said. Wouldn't it be expedient for us to kill Jesus? It doesn't matter if he's innocent. It doesn't matter if he's actually the Son of God. It doesn't matter if he's actually the Messiah. Wouldn't it be expedient for us to get rid of him? Pilate, I'm sure, had lived a life of that sort of expediency. It doesn't matter if it's true or right. Just How does it make me feel? Does it put me on top at the end? doesn't matter how I get there. The means don't matter. The, all that matters is the end. How do I, what do I get at the end? It's pragmatism. This is why we can see Pilate finding Jesus not guilty, but instead of freeing Jesus, sends him off to Herod. We'll see about this. And when he comes back to him, instead of freeing Jesus, he offers a deal. Which one do you want instead? And he puts Jesus against a notorious, horrible, evil man, a murderer and a seditious, treasonous guy. And they pick pick Jesus to be crucified and to free Barabbas. Pilate's not after truth. He's after expedience and whatever helps himself in some weird way. And again, Americans especially struggle with the philosophy of pragmatism. I've heard some people call that pragmatism is the uniquely American philosophy. (laughs) Like, we own pragmatism. What a horrible legacy to be credited with. But just because something brings forth a certain result does not justify the means by which those results are achieved. And deep down, we all know that truth does matter. Truth is correspondence with reality. And we are all keenly aware of that. One of my favorite examples comes from Al Mohler, President of Southern Baptist Seminary, he was speaking on this kind of issue, postmodern ideas, the idea that truth is relative, that truth is subjective, that you make up what is true. True is whatever is true to you is true to you, and what's true to you is true to you, that kind of idea. And he said, you know, that's all, all fine and good until you start thinking about things like, no one wants a postmodern pilot, where true to them is true to somebody else is different. You know, I can just fly this plane however I want, it doesn't really matter. There's no real up or down. There's who cares about landing and following all the rules that the air traffic controller, who does he actually think he is, you know, who is he is an authority. Nobody wants a postmodern pilot. Nobody wants a postmodern doctor or surgeon. You know, is it, is it really true that if I snip these veins that this person will bleed out and die on the table? I mean, is it really gonna be that way? Nobody wants that sort of individual, right? We I mean, all us in the end, we understand there is something that's called truth, and it's correspondence with how things really are. But the problem is, for so many men, the issue is this. John MacArthur says it well. Without God, there cannot be any absolutes. Without God, there cannot be any absolutes. Without absolutes, there can't be any objective, universal, normative truths. Truth, Truth becomes subjective, relative, pragmatic. Objectivity gives way to subjectivity. Timeless, universal principles become mere personal and cultural preferences. That's where we are with the definition of marriage today, Right? If there is no God, there are no standards. So who gets to say what's true? Whatever preferences are in existence at that period of time, there is no objective standard on morality. There is no objective standard on what is true and right. You see here Pilate putting forth the question, what's truth? And sadly, many today are just there as well. And they're not willing to stick around long enough to genuinely seek out an answer, nor submit to truth when it's spoken to them because they just don't want to hear, ultimately. The Bible also prophesied this, that people have itchy ears in the last days. They only want to hear what they want to hear. If you tell them what is true, they reject truth. Because they don't love truth. Jesus' claim here to being king and being having a kingship of truth exhibits that His kingdom has implications and not merely a Jewish audience, but for all who love truth, for Jesus himself, John 14:6 is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. But that doesn't mean that his kingdom is not for this world. And praise be to him that he is calling people. He is inviting people to be a part of his kingdom. Well, Pilate proves he's not among those whom the Father has given to the Son because he ultimately doesn't care about truth. He says, what is truth? He leaves out. But what is the verdict regarding Jesus? This brings us to our last and final point. The God-man on trial. We learn here that only God, Jesus can save you. First of all, let's consider the innocence of the God-man. Pilate finds nothing worthy of punishment in Jesus. This is a repetitive theme throughout the trials of Jesus. I find no guilt in Him. I find no guilt in Him. Jesus' own betrayer, Judas, we looked at this last week, after, after he finds that Jesus is condemned, goes to the Jewish authorities and says, I betrayed innocent blood. He's not actually guilty. He throws his Silver into the temple. And he goes out and hangs himself. That was the one who betrayed Jesus. Who watched Jesus through all his years of earthly ministry. And here we have Pilate. He didn't see Jesus making a threat on Roman rule. So a charge of sedition or rebellion couldn't stand against him. But if Jesus is innocent, why is Jesus still ultimately condemned to death? He's innocent. So why isn't that just the end of the story? You're exonerated. Leave. and Jewish leadership, leave him alone. He's innocent. He hasn't done anything wrong. But it doesn't end there, as we'll look at next time. And ultimately, it lands in his crucifixion. We see the crucifixion of the God-man. Why? Well, we can say at least three reasons quickly. First, the Jewish leadership persists on pressuring Pilate. They won't take that as an answer. He says, I find no guilt in him. Luke 23, 5. But they were insisting that. He stirs up the people. He's teaching throughout Judea, beginning from Galilee to here. Now I'm starting to talk about the spread of Jesus' influence. This is what Pilate will pick up on. We'll see next time. And he's like, oh, Galilee? Oh, let's send him to Herod. <laughs> let's you know, push this off on somebody else. Let him take care of this. You see in Mark 15, 3-5, Matthew 27, 12-14, again, chief priests and elders accused Jesus greatly. Pilate said to Jesus... Do you not hear that they testify against you? You answer nothing. See how many things they accuse you of. But Jesus wouldn't answer even one word. So Pilate marveled greatly. He can't understand how Jesus can be silent in the midst of this multitude of accusations that are being made against him. But the Jewish leadership persists. They're putting pressure on Pilate. So that's one element. Why is he end up being crucified? Well, one element of this is because the Jewish leadership persists in saying he needs to be put to death. Second element is that because Pilate desires to save face. So he ultimately does cater to Jewish demands. He compromises on truth. He pushes towards expediency. He wants to prevent any rumors being circulated that in some way he's supportive of a rebel against Roman rule. The Jewish leaders will say, if you don't do something with him, we're going to let Rome know. We're going to let Rome know that you're letting this political organizer continue to exist. Pilate, who has no commitment to truth, can punt it out the window and do what's wrong in order to save his own skin. But the third and most ultimate reason, why does Jesus still go to the cross? Because God's advancing his plan. Why does Jesus finally go to the cross? Yeah, the Jews still wanted him dead. Yeah, Pilate was saving face. But why does He go to the cross? Ultimately, because His Father told Him to, and He submitted to that plan. What was going on here? A much bigger thing was going on. The redemption of mankind. Jesus' death was foreordained by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Jesus willingly went to the cross to drink the cup of God's wrath in the place of sinners. The power that's ultimately being exercised here is only that which is allocated and permitted by God. God is in control. You see, no valid indictment was offered at the beginning of Jesus' trial, and no conviction is made of Him at the end, yet He's crucified. Jesus is not guilty. He didn't merit the mistreatment He received, and the death that He died was not a wage of His own sin, because He never sinned. Yet, this is good news. Because we're then led to the fact that we realize that Jesus did not die for his own sins. Thus, he died for someone else's. He didn't die for his own sins because he never sinned. But he died as a sacrifice for those who believe in him. He, the sinless one, died in the place of sinners. He, the righteous one, died for the unrighteous to bring them to God. Jesus submitted himself to Pilate's judgment against himself so that those who trust in Jesus do not have to go under the judgment of God. He took the curse so we could be blessed. He died so we could live. So the ultimate question is, what will you do concerning Jesus? Will you repent of your sins? Will you repent of empty rituals? Will you repent of the rejection of truth? And will you trust in Jesus who is the way, the truth, and the life? Will you repent and believe that you may live? Should you refuse, then you will see a certain judgment and you will perish. The only hope any of us has of being declared righteous, should we be put on trial before the judgment seat of God, is that we repent of our sin and trust in Jesus who died and rose again to justify the ungodly. The question before us is, will you repent of your self-righteousness? Will you repent of your self-concern? Will you come to the God-man, the King of the Jews, yes, but also the King of righteousness and the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the Lord Jesus Christ? Don't wait another moment. Call out to Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank You for Your glorious Word and how it points us to Your Son, Jesus. In the midst of all the nefarious plots against Your Son, we see Your glorious plan coming to fruition. We know that if you can work through these sorts of circumstances to bring about good for your people, certainly you can do so with all of the trials and difficulties we encounter as your people. Lord, I pray that we would see the greatness of our Savior. The King who was willing to die for his subjects. It's reversed. I mean, isn't it subjects that are to die for their King? But You, our King, die for us. Remind us anew of the glories of the Gospel, of the good news that there is salvation for ungodly men and women. That is not built on our ability to do something, but based upon what Jesus has accomplished. May, re- may He receive all the glory and honor for this marvelous work of redemption, all to the praise of Your glorious grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.